checking to see if I need to put my tie back on. <laughs> I, I have one with me. Good morning. I am Patrick D. McCoy, Performing Arts Commons for Washington Life Magazine. It's such an honor to be here for the last of the Community Symposium Series of the Color of Music Festival. And I'm very sad that I'm leaving Charleston today, but before I do, I must express my deepest appreciation to Lee Pringle for having me to be a part of this series, and, and thank you so much. Before I get into the 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 nitty-gritty, as we say, of, of, of my part of this. I want to share a personal antidote. It was very meaningful for me to be here as a part of this symposium with Wayne Brown this morning because he may not remember this, but I met Wayne in 2004 cutting class. I was cutting class, not him. In 2004, Kathleen Ballard did a recital at the Kennedy Center, and I was a student at Shenandoah Conservatory, and I said, I need to go hear her, and I did. And when I went to that concert, after the concert, Ms. Battle was getting on the elevator, heads up to the Terrace Theater, and her, the heel of her high heel shoe got caught in the elevator. I don't know if you remember that, and all the gentlemen around her were helping her get that shoe out, and one of the men was there was Wayne Brown. And I was wondering, who is this gentleman that have this such rapport with Kathleen Battle? Later on, I moved to D.C. in 2006, and I would start seeing Wayne Brown in all these various concerts, never imagining that I was seeing the director of music and opera for the NEA. So it's such a full circle moment for me. So it's an honor to be here with you this morning. And I want to jump uh, right in. First of all, the talk this morning was an amazing, Wayne. And I just wanted to um, piggyback on your experience at the National Endowment. That was such a large-scale experience in Washington where you had a broad outreach to the arts community nationally and globally. Could you maybe share with us how that now translates to you on a local level back in your hometown of Detroit? Great question. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. And uh, uh, the, let me start off by saying public service can be an invaluable because of my work at the local level uh, and the regional level before, before going to Washington, I was able to bring a field perspective to our work uh, in Washington. However, as a result of my time in Washington and being able to observe practices, emerging themes, the cycles of artistic expressions, the cycles of organizations, uh, I was then able to see not so much when, when the question was raised, uh, who has the best of this, that, or the other, it really is not about that. What are the characteristics in place at a particular location and time that allow a particular condition to be enhanced, improved upon, etc.? So, my time now in Detroit is, I, I believe I have the great benefit of seeing how certain circumstances might be applicable to whatever we're addressing uh, in our local community. So it's, it's, this, it's, uh, it's full circle. <laughs> it's a certain knowledge base, a certain skill set at the local level that one acquires. It's, it's, uh, it's having an opportunity to contribute to a national dialogue. And now, and as a result, I feel the better for that, those two experiences on my return. 
Thank you so much. If I may be informal just for a second, you know there are many little anecdotes we hear people say, and one that we oftentimes say is they say, don't be funny with my... Yes. And sometimes when we get this conversation with the arts, people start to get funny about the money when it comes to funding the arts. So I want to talk to Lee Pringle, the founder of this festival, because I'm sure there are a lot of financial resources that have come into play here. Talk to us a little bit about garnering funds for such a venture. First of all, uh, I want to thank you, Patrick, for coming in and, and agreeing to do this because you have contributed in such an enormous way. I can't thank you enough. <laughs> um, from a, you know, I have a very unique background. I spent 25 years in financial services, and one segment of that, uh, business and estate planning, and all the things that Wayne had mentioned earlier, succession planning, was a part of you know, my daily uh, activities managing folks. And I always knew there were people bequeathing large sums of money, so arts organization and how that worked. But also when I became director with the Charleston Symphony, I got to see it at another, at, at another level. And philanthropy is a very interesting um, area because a lot of it is based on emotions and what triggers someone, what some personal interest might be but it can literally change the world. When Wayne mentioned 1919, the first thing that came to mind for me was the fact that in 1918, Andrew Kennedy started Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association. In conjunction with that, someone by the name of Theodore, I think, Perkinski, or somebody may be saying the Polish name incorrect, was the person who invented the annuity. So philanthropy has this full circle evolution where a seed of a $10 million endowment created the first pension in our country for teachers and also gave us Carnegie Hall. The Charleston Library Society, a lot of people don't know that Andrew Carnegie actually wanted to give $75,000 many, many months ago. They turned him down because the requirement was with his donation, there had to be a section in the library for black people. Mm -hmm. So. I knew when I embarked upon this big task, I had to develop relationships with people who had the ability to write a check. And that was going to take time. And I mentioned to Wayne when we were talking prior to the presentation, uh, there are many, many things that can become uh, anchored as a result of calling the music festival. But this process of the first anniversary gives us an idea of how we can hone in and become what we're going to be to not only the region, but the nation and to the world. So I think relationships, as Wayne indicated, by getting into schools one by one, that's how you build it. That's how the organizations who are solidified with endowments did it. It didn't come out of the sky. It didn't work those relationships the rest of Thank you so much. Um, during Wayne's talk this morning, he uh, basically uh, intimated the fact that I'm sort of a passing the torch to the next generation of arts administrators. And I didn't get a chance to formally introduce the panel, but I'll do that um, as I um, speak to you. But one person that represents this kind of passing the torch to me is Jennifer Bowman. Jennifer Bowman is on the panel, uh, concert manager for the Folger Concert in Washington, which, is, um, which specializes in early music. So first of all, Jennifer, welcome to the Color Music Festival. And I want to talk to you in particular. Talk to me about your role as it pertains to 
um, first of all, being manager of the consort and involving African-American performers in early music, which is kind of neat. Thank you so much. And it was interesting to listen to Wayne speak. You have a lot of parallels, Jennifer, with Wayne, because if, just a point of personal uh, privilege, I first met Jennifer when I used to work in the box office at the Kennedy Center. And I've watched Jennifer uh, work her way up through the Kennedy Center in various uh, departments, and she's a soprano and all that. So it's interesting to see all these disciplines bring her to this point. So thank you again. Um, Dr. Karen Chandler here at the College of Charleston, good to talk to you again. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about the aspect of um, your program as far as arts administration? Because what I find is a lot of times people can sing a wonderful aria, they can play a gorgeous chacon, but they don't know how to manage their career. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Well, our program actually is one of the largest undergraduate programs in arts management in the country. Um, we have about 270, 270 majors. Um, we are actually the largest program and the emphasize program because we are actually not a full-fledged academic department. If you know anything about higher education, you know that that is significant. Um, that means that we have got a small faculty um, and we rely on adjuncts to teach in the field, to teach our courses. Um, the program is what I refer to sort of as a comprehensive arts management program, and that is its emphasis is not discipline specific. There are music management programs throughout the country, there are museum management programs throughout the country, theater management, um, but ours is arts management that focuses on all the disciplines. So in a classroom, you may have composers, you may have pianists, you may have sculptors, you may have playwrights, you may have actors. Um, so uh, uh, everybody from many, many different being taught essentially the same kind of thing. Um, the uh, curriculum is focused on uh, fundraising, uh, on uh, marketing there too. 
uh, intro-level courses that students uh, take. It's a survey course, the first course uh, that they take. And the second is more of a hands-on course where they create um, uh, a nonprofit organization. Um, uh, that's uh, assignment sort of is beginning to change a little bit as we see uh, the development of different kinds of nonprofit and hybrid um, arts organizations. But they learn to create an organization, they learn to um, uh, form a board, they have got to form a board of people, uh, a staff, uh, they've got to learn how to downsize a staff. So they come up with a realistic staff for their organization. Um, they plan and vet. Um, they uh, create a marketing plan for that event and a fundraising plan for that event. They uh, have a project budget um, for that event they, that they start at the beginning of the year, of the semester. They come back and they revisit it at the end. And in fact, uh, next week, we're, we'll actually be visiting their budget um, as they have talked about how they're going to market it and, and so forth um, throughout the course of the semester so that they understand that budgets change. <laughs> uh, and so uh, that is the second course they have. They are required to do volunteer experience in that second class. It's important for us to get them connected to the community uh, very early on. And so that's an experience they have a required internship. So that's essentially the, 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 uh, the curriculum. And um, one of the things that we are finding um, with uh, students who are majoring is in, in music, which is a bit concerning, um, and that is that not all of them have had experience in the arts. There are those who come to us who have an interest in business, but they just kind of like the arts, but they don't know anything about music, about theater. That's our challenge now that I've seen over 15 years of being here, uh, directed this undergraduate program, the, the change in the type of student um, that we have. And so on the undergraduate level, it's tough um, in terms of the number of credit hours that they have to, to take to be able to teach an art form. Uh, and uh, so that's one of the challenges that I would say that, uh, that we're faced with, with um, uh, teaching an arts management program. Thank you so much, and Wayne, this is a wonderful toss back to you. Um, during your talk, if I may paraphrase, you basically talked about um, the past um, guard of basically the, the uh, old tradition of keeping pace, keeping up with the times now in, in arts management. Could you maybe talk about the role of social media technology as it pertains to uh, the arts and getting the word out? It's critical. It's, uh
second ads is just that it's, you know, it's, it's no longer cost effective. In the city of Detroit, the Detroit Free Press uh, has uh, readership is is down uh, by you know over over forty percent over the last uh, over the last uh, fifteen years. Uh, people are not relying on their information because it's old news by the time if you look, by the time they read it. Uh, right now, we can know exactly what's going on uh, the other side of the globe in 20 minutes or less. And so it's that kind of environment that requires us to be much more strategic about what is the nature of our relationship. So we've carved out an initiative in Detroit over these last few months, creating what we call patron management system. So we're combining marketing, development, customer service into one team. And part of that customer service team, which is which is which is uh, 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 being able to uh, take advantage of the uh, of social media, is to say that when we communicate with Joy, we know exactly her, the history. So she's not hearing from the development part. She's not hearing from the box office department. She's not hearing from somebody else. We know that when any member of the team will go to Joy and say. Thank you for your continued support at Michigan Opera Theater. We were delighted that you were able to attend the performance of Electra on September the 2nd and that you were back for a fundraising event on October the 1st. It, that, it's that comprehensive understanding of how each of our patrons interact. Thank you so much. And that leads me to the whole idea of branding. The thing that really impressed me about this festival, I had heard of uh, Chevalier um, before. But it didn't hit home until I saw all of the posters, the graphics, the signage with this elegant man of black descent who was a classical composer on, on these posters. And so, Lee, I want to direct this, subject, this topic of branding to you and um, invite any of our panelists to chime in. Talk to me about the whole concept of how you uh, came about the branding of this festival and how does it carry the festival forth? I
That's <laughs> where the festival organizing process takes place. So that's how the branding came along. I knew that it would ca capture people's attention because most people had never seen a mulatto in powder wig, elegantly. But he's actually a master, he was a master fencer, so that's his fencing poster. And it's the only picture that I've been able to find of Chevalier. And so we've gone back and forth. Karen and I talked last year whether or not to use Edmund and Jenkins this year as our brand. And everybody kept coming back to me saying, no, you, you got to stick with Chevalier and because it captures people's attention. So here's our poster boy. That's how I came up with it. Anybody else on the, on the panel want to talk to the subject of branding, the importance of branding? Well, first of all, it's a good call. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because it, 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 and I tried to reference it in my, my, my talk, it conveys uh, a, 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 a unique focus, I think, uh, on the subject matter. It ties in so directly to the vision that you shared with us about what you have for the organization. It immediately translates. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole notion of branding. Uh, something that communi immediately communicates that it that uh, doesn't take long to, to, to figure out and that can be applied consistently. Uh, so that both the image and the, and the, and the title of, of your festival work hand in Thanks. Anybody else before we move forward on the panel? Okay. <laughs> Um, another aspect of, of this uh, enterprise that, we, that we're involved with, the Color Music Festival, that really fascinates me is the level of support from the community uh, and volunteers in addition to um, sometimes other organizations have the benefit of paid staff. But um, Lee or anyone else on the panel, could you talk to me about the importance of garnering volunteer support uh, to make a vision like this happen?
the, I, I very much agree with that, and the affinity relationships between, um, for example, the uh, festival and a volunteer are really important. I mean, volunteers are going to initially uh, connect with the product, with what it, it is that you are offering. Uh, and so, you've got a great product, as we have here with Color Music Festival. It's not difficult to uh, attract them. Um, I, I, I do think that a lot of um, work needs to go into, in terms of many of our uh, arts organizations, of really how we um, keep volunteers connected. So I think we can attract them. I think we can get them in the door. But uh, then how do we sustain that? So I think sustainability of uh, volunteerism is an issue that we probably should give a lot more thought to with many of our and I'll follow up um, Karen's comment. Um, one of the things that I, I often talk to younger people in the field, um, when I was working at the Kennedy Center especially, I talked to a lot of interns who would come to me and ask, well, how do I get started working with an organization? I don't have the experience yet, they're not hiring me. One of the things I always suggest to them is that if you see an organization you're really passionate about, consider starting there as a volunteer. Get a job, yes, so you can make some money, like have lights and things, but consider working with an organization as a volunteer, um, you know, letting them know that you have these skills that are very important to them and finding out what they need and how you can fill some small void. Um, I've seen those sort of volunteer opportunities turn into jobs for some of our interns and that sort of thing because sometimes in arts administration, arts management, you know, you have to be a little creative to get your foot in the door for organizations. Jennifer, I'd like to actually continue with you. I've, I've had a chance to see you actually at work in terms of putting things together in your capacity as a manager with the Washington Bach Consort and now with the Folger Consort. Could you talk to us about this element of time management as we talked about arts management? Because one thing that I've been impressed about this festival that everything starts on time. Could you maybe talk about time and the implications of promptness and timeliness affects the organization? Would anybody else like to pick back on it? Okay, go ahead. I'd like to say, um, because I can say jokingly to this, this crowd, that um, my focus on starting on time has to do with not confirming any stereotypes. I'll be completely honest with you. You know, my mother, bless her, um, just ran, I call it the military camp. I was growing up. And I did study 
eight years in the U.S. Navy where everything has to be on time. But uh, I think when you are setting an example of uh, excellence, that uh, it's very important that we send a message that everybody's time is important. Mm -hmm. And people have things planned that you may have no idea, and they wanted to be a part of something that you put together. And to start late is just really the worst thing I think that you can do. As Jennifer indicated, there are always going to be situations that are extenuating, and you just have no control over that when it comes to mechanical issues, etc. But to be known for starting on time should not be something that's unique, it should just be it's the norm. And that's what we're going to do, and I think everybody on this panel has a value of that. So that's what I can contribute to the time factor. And I, I think, too, speaking to what we said, when organizations have a reputation for whether it's starting late or just doing something that's a little unsatisfactory in terms of customer service, people notice and people label them with that. Um, and that sometimes makes decisions on whether or not they're going to buy tickets and exactly. show or recommend for their friends to come and see them. So I've heard it, I've seen it. The only other thing I would add to not starting on time, and I have to say this because if you have a big house, particularly in places like a, a, a city like Charleston where parking is a challenge and there are decks and you have people lining up even trying to get into that. Last night, you know, as Jennifer indicated, you, you're, you're talking to box office, you're trying to figure out, okay, we have pre-sales of this amount, you know, they anticipate walk-ups, and you're factoring in how much time can I push back <laughs> to time. And I said to, you know, the uh, my production guy who was doing stage management and helped me last night, I said, 10 minutes is the max. 10 minutes is the max that we'll go because, you know, the manager is a difficult hall to get in. But those are the situations where you kind of, you'll just tread the line, but you want to be on time. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this is kind of a, a, a free-for-all for the panel. Um, Lee, you were talking about the fact sometimes when people have an idea, sometimes they just want to, you know, plop it down and, you know, everybody, you know, <laughs> cover this idea. So my question, um, I guess, Wayne, you can kind of lead off on this. Could you maybe talk about uh, building rapport with the media, the newspapers, the press? When you have an idea, how do you really go about approaching press? Because sometimes people don't approach in the right way to garner the kind of response that your idea deserves. So, as I have taken note, the question is coming from a member of the media. <laughs> 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 and I'm here, so that's why. <laughs> so, I, I, I think that uh, there's a tendency that, that some uh, arts leaders take a position that I'm not going to share my project until everything is nailed down. I happen to take a slightly take a slightly different approach, and that is, I will share a concept. I will share, and I share a concept because that's part of my fact finding to determine whether or not the concept that I'm processing how uh, that might resonate. Uh, so without necessarily conveying all the particulars of a given project, uh, you know, I might inquire about, you know, the whole notion of, um, uh, for example, uh, when I arrived at the Pushkinov uh, Theater, there were four performances with five performances each, four productions with five performances 
And I wanted to see how we could increase visibility in the community. So I approached the then uh, the particular uh, critic and, and, and shared with that critic. I wanted to think in terms of going to five productions, but with four performances. In other words, we had capacity to be able to condense. And therefore, we'd have more presence, and more presence, more state of mind. Uh, and, but I want to put that fifth performance in regional centers as opposed to in the main hall. So this is going to be potentially a kind of dramatic shift because it will be the first time that the Michigan Opera Theater would produce opera outside of the opera house. And uh, so just getting a sense of uh, just checking the temperature about how such a concept might work is, uh, is with, a, with a perfect example of not necessarily believing that uh, you have to identify uh, where the center is going to take place, who the artist is going to be, uh, what's the timing level, but just sharing enough to get a sense of what possibilities might exist. Because that may help to inform one's decision uh, as you continue to flush out the possibilities. I, I, I can respond to that. Um, uh, I found um, over the last 15 years of teaching in the arts management program here um, that our students um, don't know much about print media. Uh, in fact, uh, they really don't read newspapers. They really don't read magazines. They're on the internet. So whatever's on the internet, blogs and, and, and so forth. So the traditional ways in which um, we have had relationships with uh, the media, they don't know the product. They, you know, they don't know the paper, the, the magazine. I was doing this just last week. I had to bring in a newspaper, and I went through the sections of the newspaper. Here's what a newspaper is. Here are the sections of it. Here's how it's laid out. You've got to send a press release in if you expect to get a feature article. What a feature article is. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's the real deal with who our future arts administrators are, y'all. These are future arts administrators that I'm bringing in a paper, say. So um, one of the examples that I had given them, so once we get, you know, we got to talk about that first before I can start talking about um, pitching feature stories. And uh, I asked them to begin thinking very creatively about their, their many years ago, and uh, I uh, had met a, uh, an art collector, actually a collector of Benin um, art, and I wanted to exhibit uh, his, his art in the, uh, uh, in the center. And um, I mean, these were really, really priceless um, uh, pieces. And so uh, I was working with uh, one of the editors at the uh, Post and Courier, and I had gone to his house, and so I all these the gorgeous pieces are all over the house. They're not, you know, protected somewhere in a, in a, in a, in a storage room with a, you know, big lock on it. But they're just sort of all over the house. And he had two great games. And, you know, great games sort of galloping through the house. And I'm thinking, don't you get nervous with all this priceless art having these uh, uh, great games of, you know, galloping through the house. And, and, and he said, well, you know, um, I don't look at these pieces, you know, as 
you know, exhibition pieces. You know, they are part of us. They're part of uh, how we live. And um, so, you know, they're in, you know, bathrooms and they're everywhere. And so all the while I am in the home, I'm trying to get an idea of how I'm going to pitch this. I mean, and I tell my students, you know, don't pitch it straight. Straight is there will be an exhibit, uh, an exhibit of uh, such and such collective work on this date. Come. I said, no, find some other interesting angle, a hook, um, that will be uh, of interest to a local audience. And so long and short of it uh, was I ended up uh, meeting with um, the editor. Uh, and we decided, the postgraduate, we decided that we would focus on the collector and his home and his art. And then the last thing they say, she'd say in the article is, oh, and if you'd like to see the art, it will be exhibited at the, and so then there was a conversation about placement. Where in the paper does this go? Well, to go straight, to think straight is arts and travel section of the Post and Garden. Uh, we decided now, home and garden. The home and garden section is where that was placed. So, you know, one of the things I try to get students to think about is those kind of creative ways, the hooks and the angles um, that they need to, to, to uh, talk with media about as they're pitching uh, their stories. So. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I do have a PR person at the library who handles a lot of that for us, but I try to find a really interesting way to reach out to the bloggers in our area. DC has a number of bloggers, um, one particular woman, Philip Hughes, who's an art collector and also has um, a blog website, just movement called the Pinkline Project, um, and they've been very supportive of our early music um, series, but, you know, we try to find really interesting ways to let them know about what we're doing with our season so that she can share that with her thousands of people who read her blog. So in, order, in addition to reaching out to you know, media and press, we also try to reach out to the cultural tastemakers in the area who a lot of people often go to to find out what's happening um, in the art scene. So that's a really fruitful opportunity as well. And I just wanted to say very shortly before we move to the question and, and answer period that it's nothing wrong with a blogger. Sometimes we hear this word blogger, we say, oh no, we're going to send it to them. We're not going to send it to them because they're a blogger. But as you just uh, mentioned, Jennifer, they have a um, network that you haven't even tapped in and you're missing because you're saying, you know, they're a blogger. So thank you so much. Yes, Lee. Yeah, I just want to say about the uh, trust release and because I've had people joking and saying, my God, your everywhere. Um, I found that the people who are in what we consider to be the traditional roles, be it a Adam Harper or someone on a national level um, at ETD Radio that uh, wrote the, the, the story on South Carolina, I can't remember his name, it's just slipping my name right now, Walter Edgars, Dr. Walter Edgars, they're always looking for an interesting story. So if you have a good call, something that is interesting to the greater society, I can assure you any national be it, Sentry Magazine, New York Times, people will write about it if it's interesting. And so I've been telling my friends, we're hitting them all. You know, the next person we're targeting is Fred Childs of Performing Today. I can 
assured you he is interested in a way that his program can be interesting to his listeners. So it's about just asking. You don't have to have a report with them. Send them an email. Everybody's email now is on their website or what have you. You'd be surprised that people will contact you and say, oh, God, yes, we want to do this. So I just tell people, ask. All they can say is that they got a 50-50 chance. <laughs> <laughs> Wayne, do you have a final word before we move on to the... Yes, now this applied to the, to the question that was before us. It underscores the changing nature of how we communicate with patrons, with how we communicate with, with, the, with the general audience. Increasingly, newspapers are, have eliminated arts critics, eliminated uh, uh, the, the, the whole role of the arts critic has changed dramatically, uh, and therefore it requires more ownership by our organizations, by our individuals, to have the skills to be able to know how, uh, how to frame, how to communicate, and to take advantage of the various platforms in order to get the message across. So, uh, I'm delighted to, uh, to join my fellow panelists in uh, this exploration, and, uh, and, and thank you again, uh, Lee, for helping to make this Hall uh, Music Festival your choose. Uh, thank you. At this time, we invite any of the members of the audience who may have a question for Wayne Brown or any of our panelists, Dr. Karen Chandler, Jennifer Bowman, and of course, Lee Pringle, if you would make your way to the floor, Mike, so that we all may hear your question, we would love to give you an answer. Oh, sure. Yes, please. Hello again. So, um, the last comment about art criticism and the actual understanding of, of um, what it takes to have someone be able to articulate the work. Do any of you actually work with an art critic in your community? Do you bring someone in to have some kind of dialogue about the work and what the community may experience? Can you speak to that? Well, can I speak to it as an arts critic? That would be great. Um, and the next step, how do we take in that work? Okay, I'll try to speak from my perspective. As, as some of you know, and many, I'm one of the few African-American classical music critics. And um, the difference I would say for me is that I'm actually a musician myself. My background is music. Um, my undergrad is in voice. My master's is in uh, voice as well. So I come from an informed place. And a lot of times, I, what my experience or the perception of the critic is, the person say, oh, why are you saying this about me? You don't know anything about it, blah, 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 X, Y, Z. And I can understand it. However, I'm not that person. And as a critic, when I come to a performance, I'm not there to uh, tear it down. I'm there to give my observations and things uh, that I see that might can accentuate or help the organization. Um, I'm lucky that I'm a very direct person. So I'll give you a prime example and I can speak about this person because I know that um, we're friends. Julian Wachner, who's the conductor of the Washington Court, is a prime example. He is a person that I review 
his concerts many times, and people might think, oh, there's a bias. But when I hear something that I disagree with or I have a question about, to avoid me writing something you know, that might be perceived as harsh or you know, not received well, I mean, I think about it very well, and, I, and don't get me wrong, I'm telling the truth, but I am comfortable enough to approach a conductor and say, hey, this is what I heard, and I just want to make sure this is what it was. And it was an example just recently where he uh, did a work, and it was something that kind of went awry in my viewpoint, and I shared that, and he expressed that concern. So I was able to come from an informed place as a critic when I wrote and not from a place of just, oh, the critic is, is tearing it down. And I know if you don't have that inside track, people might perceive that. But that's my uh, perception of that. And what was the other part so I can make sure I get that? Well, do you then, as you talk to the conductor, is there a true dialogue um, where you then use whatever dialogue you have with the conductor to inform the next time you um, uh, go and Yes, I think so. I mean, I think that's an ongoing thing for me and people who follow my work, um, people who are used to seeing how I write. Um, I do, to use the word dig, I guess, <laughs> you know, I do build my cake and have a little something there. But, you know, I, I think that um, the rapport that I have that, that, that comes across, I do try to translate that each experience. And then again, too, as a critic, I generally don't attend things that don't interest me, and that way I can kind of avoid having, if, if I know I don't like Stravinsky, or, which I do, because they did Stravinsky, did I <laughs> but just an example, if, you know, I, I'm not going to go to hear that if I know I'm already with the position, oh, I hate this music, and I, I don't really hear it, so, yeah, I think it's a good continued dialogue for me.
Thank you. I think we have time enough for one more question, and then we're just about out of time. Does anybody else have a question from the floor or observation? Anybody? Okay, thank you all so much for being here for the final symposium series. I'm Patrick D. McCoy, and we'll be prepared to move on. Thank our panelists. Thank you.